Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you will get your Bibles out, open it up to the book of Romans. This is Romans night, once again, for the third consecutive Sunday night. It's a lot of Romans in a short span of time, but we are working this year uh, expositorily through the uh, book of Romans, the great epistle that Paul wrote to that Roman church, and uh, the time is, uh, is, is narrowing, and uh, I'm still undecided as to whether we're going to just devote the remaining time that I've got here to just banging out the book of Romans for the remainder of that time, or uh, we may leave it unfinished. Don't know. Haven't decided on that yet. Maybe your input will help determine some of that, but I'm glad that we have the chance to be together this evening and to study from Romans, the eighth chapter. If you haven't already, open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. It is great to see everybody tonight. So glad that you are uh, here this evening. Glad to have guests with us once again. And I hope that you're encouraged by our time here together this evening. And I really just want to get right to doing some work here in Romans chapter 8 because this probably is my favorite section in the entire book of Romans. And I'm going to guess if many of you had to pick a favorite section in Romans, you might choose this exact same section as well. So read with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 8. This is verse number 18. In Romans 8 and in verse 18, there Paul writes, Romans 8 verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Have you ever been traveling somewhere and maybe you're heading down the road and you see one of those signs that says, Scenic Overlook, one mile ahead. And whenever you see that, maybe you're still on your way to your destination, sometimes we see that and we think, oh, it's, we don't really have time for that. It might be kind of neat, but we just don't really have time for that. Or maybe we just kind of decide that maybe the view from our windshield or through the windows of our car, we'll just look outside and just kind of observe it as we're passing. And we just kind of go on and keep going toward our destination. But every now and then, we do pull over and we do stop and see that scenic overlook. When Hattie and I were headed to uh, Chattanooga, we had a little overnight trip, just me and her back in January. And as we were heading down I-75, there was one of those signs, scenic overlook ahead. And so we, we decided we were going to pull over. Hattie had actually been asleep, and I was back, wake up, wake up, we're going to see this. And I don't really want to see it. Well, once we got pulled off, kind of came around that loop, it just kind of opened up. It's as if just the, the whole world just kind of opened up, the big wide expanse. Then, of course, once we got the car part, we got out of the car and we walked up to the railing. Wow. It was like you could just see forever. I mean, just the hills were so far off in the distance. It had been snowing a little bit, so you could even see a little glistening of white across those hills in the distance. It was just this big wide open expanse. And man, it was just breathtaking. When we got done, we were so glad that we had stopped and seen that. Well, I think in many ways, that's where we are in Romans chapter 8. It is a scenic overlook. This is one of the high points in all of Scripture. It is one of the greatest passages ever written in a book that is full of amazing passages. It is a scenic overlook that one writer described it as, from here, from here we can see forever. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Because I think from Romans 8, I can see from here all the way to heaven. I think I can. And I think from Romans 8, I can see into heaven. And I can see you. And I can see me. And I can see all of us gathered around the throne of God, worshiping Him throughout all of eternity. Last Sunday, I began this grand chapter by working with the first 17 verses, 
where we saw the things that Paul had to say about the new way. The new way of living in the Spirit. And we talked about some of the great benefits of that idea of living in the Spirit. How the gospel is able to set us free from the law of sin and death. We talked about what it means to have our minds set on the things of the Spirit. To be spiritually minded. And then we close by talking about just the wonderful blessing of being adopted into the family of God. Being a child of His. Being a fellow heir with Christ. In the remaining 22 verses now, Paul's going to continue to enumerate some of those blessings of living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And he's going to do that by giving us just this marvelous scenic view that stretches all the way into heaven itself. Paul wants to say to those Christians in Rome in the first century, and by extension he wants to say to you and I even today, that you can go to heaven. That really is going to be just kind of the main thrust this evening as we work through the back half of Romans 8, is that you can go to heaven. The gospel most certainly wants to grant to you life right now while you're here upon this earth. But even more than all of that, the gospel and the Lord wants to grant to you eternal life that culminates in eternal glory. And my hope this evening is that you will leave here with a greater appreciation and with even more encouragement by just how much our God wants you to go to heaven and all the things that He is doing in order to get you there. Now somebody maybe would say, in fact maybe even someone in Paul's audience was kind of already thinking this and Paul anticipates it. Somebody would maybe say, well you know, I'd like to go to heaven. Heaven sounds really great. It'll just be wonderful to get to be there and to live with the Lord forever. But don't you know, Paul, it's awful hard to live right right now. It's awful hard to walk in the Spirit while we're living in the middle of this wicked old world. And you know what Paul's going to say? Paul's going to say that's right. That's right. We are living in a fallen world. There's all kinds of difficulties with living in a sin-filled world. There are constant pressures for us to conform to this world. There's always going to be temptations. It's going to be nipping at our heels. There's always going to be trials that are going to discourage us. There's always going to be illness and death in our lives. There's going to be global pandemics we're going to have to suffer through. There's going to be just a daily grind that never seems to end. Living for Christ is not always easy. But would you listen again to what Paul says? Pick up where we left off last week, verse 18. Read it with me again. Verse 18, Paul says, But I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want you to please notice that all that wonderful stuff that Paul had said in the previous verses about being an heir with Christ, that does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, it didn't even exempt Jesus from suffering. But what it does do, being an heir, being a child of God, is it provides for us a different view, a different vantage point towards suffering. And what Paul says is that for the Christian, what we are struggling with now, for whatever measure of time that we're granted on this earth, it does not even begin to compare to what awaits us in heaven. You just stop and think right now. And it may take a while for you to actually score all of this up. But you stop and think about and add up all of the hardships that you have ever faced in this life. What Paul is saying in verse 18 is that when you are in heaven for, I don't know, all of two seconds, 
all of the stuff that you have ever suffered through in this life, you will forget every single bit of that. Because in heaven, the weight of its glory is going to outshine and outweigh all of those troubles, all of those difficulties. In fact, even if you live a really, really long life, if you lived as long as like Sister Gertrude Gwynn lived, it doesn't matter how many problems you face, it won't be a blip on the radar to what we will experience in joy and in glory in heaven. And I want you to notice specifically in verse 18 the certainty with which Paul says that. Notice the word. He says, the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is confidence in what Paul is saying here. There is certainty here. And that confident assurance, I'm going to suggest to you, it grants for us real hope. The kind of hope that we can cling to that will see us all the way to heaven. You know, it's been said that a human being can endure a few seconds, some even a few minutes without air. A human being can endure a few days without water. A human being can even endure a few weeks without food. But you cannot endure anything without hope. It is hope that enables us to persevere and to press on through life's difficulties. And why? Because we know. We're confident that there's something better waiting at the end for us. And the truth of the matter is, it's not just Christians that have that hope and that anticipation for a better day. Actually, Paul says there's something else that is anticipating a better day. Look with me in verse 19. In verse 19, Paul says, For the creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just as you and I are waiting in hope, the creation too, our created world, our universe, it also is waiting in hope. The ESV uses the term eager longing. The King James, I think, uses the expression earnest expectation. It's actually quite a colorful term, and it literally means to stretch out the neck, to lean forward, to crane the neck. Imagine maybe a runner in a race. And as those runners are nearing the finish line and the tape is there, what do they do? They, they stretch the neck. They crane forward. They lean in so that they can cross that finish line. Imagine maybe in a parade. You, you and your family, a whole bunch of people are there standing watching a parade go by. What's maybe sometimes do your little kids do? They're stretching out their neck. They're trying to get a glimpse of that big float that's coming down. They want to be able to see that. They want to be able to participate in that. There's an eager anticipation there. And what Paul says is he says that creation is like that. The whole creation's got its neck stretched out. Creation is on its tiptoes in great anticipation of something better. And why is that? Well, because the creation has been subjected to... Look at that word there in verse 20. It's been subjected to futility. That is the word that is found in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes 37 times. And it is the word that we find in Ecclesiastes, maybe if we're reading from our, our Hebrew Bibles that have been translated, it's that word vanity. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. See that over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the word means empty. It means worthless. And what Paul says here is he says that the creation has been subjected to that feeling of, of emptiness and worthlessness because of what? 
because of sin. Just as we have been damaged and we have been stained by sin, so too has the creation. You know, I think we spend an awful lot of time thinking about how sin has affected us, about what happened in the garden in the very beginning, and yeah, all the problems that that's now created for you and I even today. And, and we should think about that. But maybe somewhere in all of that, we ought to think a little bit about how sin has affected the rest of God's creation. When sin was introduced there in Genesis chapter 3, the whole world was changed and not for the better. It was changed for the worse. Things are not going in this world ever since Genesis chapter 3. Things are not going the way that God created them and intended them to go. You know, we hear an awful lot in our day and time about, about Earth Day every April. And we hear a lot about uh, things like, you know, conservatism and things of that nature when it comes to our planet and, you know, being a good steward. I even preach about those kinds of things from time to time. And I certainly think that there is a place for all of that. But I'd say this. You sometimes hear folks talk about Mother Nature. I think it's a fictitious character. I don't think there's really a Mother Nature. But you know what? If Mother Nature really was a person and we had the opportunity to talk to Mother Nature, I think Mother Nature would say that she's been groaning. And she's not been groaning because somebody polluted sludge into the river. And she's not been groaning because somebody threw their litter into the forest. That's not what's causing her to groan. What's causing her to groan, what's causing the creation to groan is sin. Human beings sinning. Human beings making a mess of things. In fact, Paul goes on to keep saying that. Verse 22, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All that groaning that the creation is doing, it's not, it's not death throes. That's not the kind of groaning. It's the kind of pain that you feel in giving birth. Ladies can sympathize with this. Birth pains. It is a crying out for deliverance. To be delivered, to be set free from the pain that sin has caused. The bondage of all of that. And it's not just creation that feels that way. Verse 23. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We too are going to be delivered one day. And we want that, don't we? We want to be delivered from this, this temporal body. We certainly understand about the aches and the pains that just come along with life. But there's also all the other stuff that makes life complicated and painful. And we want delivered from that. And on top of that, we want delivered from this habitation, earth. It's a nice place. We're thankful that God has given it to us. But it's temporal. And we're looking for something better. And so we, like the creation, we also are groaning on the inside. It is difficult to live in this world, isn't it? There's plenty that's going on in our world today that makes life just very, very hard. And so we're aching, we're pining for something better. But the question is, how can we know, how can we be sure that something better is awaiting us? Well, I want you to notice the expression that Paul uses there in verse 23. When he talks about the first fruits of the Spirit, do you know what the first fruits are? The first fruits are the fruits, it's the first harvest that the farmer will bring in. And it really is kind of the marker. It is what's going to determine in many ways the way that the harvest is going to be the rest of the season. And so, for example, if the first fruits that the farmer maybe brings in is just some scroggly little couple of plants, and they're kind of weak looking, and there isn't much on them on there, well, that probably is going to be a pretty good indication things aren't going to go well. 
Not going to hold a lot of promise that things are going to be good this particular season. But if the first fruits that the farmer brings in is just a big old armload, I mean big giant bushels of just big healthy wheat with just you know, big heads on the wheat itself, oh man, that's going to make for a good year. That gives some promise that things are going to be really, really well for us. What Paul says is he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. It is the beginning of a bountiful harvest that is to come. That is that our walk in the Spirit now, it is a foretaste of the things that will come later. Yes, we are saved right now, but but we're not saved saved. You know what I mean by that? We're not in heaven yet. We're saved. It's wonderful. We get to be in the Spirit. We get to be in Christ. We get to be a Christian right now. But, but we haven't seen the ultimate fulfillment, the full fruition of that salvation. And so as we are living in the Spirit, as we talked about last Sunday, operating under the control of probably the Spirit's primary instrument, which will be the Scriptures, what are hap- what's happening is, is we're getting tiny little glimpses, tiny little previews of what that's going to be like in heaven and that... That fills us with hope, doesn't it? It does. There are moments that I know that I experience being a child of God, when I'm with the family of God, where it's those tiny little glimpses of heaven here on earth. And it fills me with great hope and anticipation for the day that is to come. In fact, Paul talks about that hope more specifically in verse 24. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. I want you to notice that this hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's not sitting around and daydreaming and having some kind of an unrealistic pipe dream. No, the hope that we have, it is rooted and anchored in God's Word. Our hope is based upon the things that God has told us. I got to thinking about this. I was reading some and a brother wrote this, talking about this this hope that we have. He described it like having the kind of anticipation that the horses have, say, at the Kentucky Derby. You ever see those horses before the races start? They maybe start getting saddled up in the paddocks over here, and those horses already, they see the other horses, they see the jockeys, they kind of have been there before. They know. They know what's about to happen. They know that they are about to run. And so they're snorting, and they're wheeling about, and they're just, I mean, they're just pacing the floor. Then, of course, the moment comes where they put them in those stalls, put them into the starting gate, and they really know now that it is almost time to run. They're waiting for that buzzer to sound. They're waiting for that shot to be fired. They want to run. They are looking for those gates to pop open so that they can go. And I think in many ways that describes how you and I are because we know what's going to happen, don't we? We've read about it. We know and we are anticipating a moment in time when the sky peels back and angels pour out and the Son of God descends in the clouds. We are hastening that day. We are looking forward to that day. We are like the horses just chomping at the bit wanting that day and that moment to be fully realized. But until then, as Paul says, verse 25... We're waiting. We're trying to wait patiently. Paul says all this stuff about we're patiently waiting. And sometimes I wonder if my patience is actually what the Lord would have it to be. But we're trying. 
Even though this sin-filled world with all of its troubles and all of its distresses are beaten on us day after day after day, we're trying to make it through. We're trying to be patient until that day finally comes. Well, what Paul offers next is, well, maybe you could use some help in the meantime. And in fact, the Lord offers that help because the next thing the Lord offers to you and I in our journey to get to heaven is, is the Spirit's going to help us in other ways. We notice a little bit of that earlier in the chapter. Look at another way in which the Spirit is going to help us. Verse 26. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, what exactly does all that mean? I'm talking here about the Spirit interceding for us. That, of course, just like pretty much everything about the Spirit, it prompts lots of questions and lots of speculation about, about the role of the Spirit and what exactly He is doing. Well, let me just say, first of all, that this certainly does not mean that the Holy Spirit takes the place of Jesus as our one mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 makes it very clear that that role belongs to Jesus. He is our one mediator. But what this passage does say is that the Spirit pleads. He pleads for one party to another. And that's what that idea of intercession or intercessory prayer is. When you pray on behalf of another person, that's what you're doing. You're interceding for that individual. And the Spirit, Paul says, the Spirit does that for us. And the best that I can tell, somebody may be looking for some kind of a you know, really dramatic kind of explanation here. But the best that I can tell is just simply what the text says. And that is that the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray for or what to say. The Spirit is able to say what we sometimes cannot say. That the Spirit will speak for us, maybe even in those moments when we just don't even feel like we can speak at all. You ever felt that way before? Sometimes just the forces of this life are so harsh upon us. Our emotions are just overtaking us. And we just don't even know what to even say to the Lord. We know we want to say something. The Spirit helps us in that. In fact, that word that's used there in verse 26, the word help, it literally just means to lend a hand. That's literally what that word help is. It is the lending of a hand. And so whether you and I ever fully understand the, the intercessory role that the Spirit plays in our lives really doesn't matter. Because what we just need to take from verse 26 is that the Holy Spirit of God is lending a hand in getting us to heaven. That's the main takeaway here. And let me just kind of throw this in, just kind of as an additional bonus here. There's no additional charge for this. Believing verse 26 does not make you a Pentecostal. Believing verse 26 makes you biblical. That's what it makes you. There's nothing here in verse 26 or verse 27 about the Spirit giving you some kind of a weird, spooky feeling inside or giving you some kind of extra special intuition. No. The text here doesn't talk about things that the Spirit does to us. The text talks about things that the Spirit does for us. And it is in those times when life is difficult when maybe we are suffering, I think Paul's still kind of undercurrent, kind of working that theme from verse 18 forward. It is in those moments when our inward man often will groan because we want to be in heaven. I'm tired of the suffering here. 
I'm tired of the pain that this life brings with it. I'm tired of seeing other people suffer. I'm tired of all the conflict and the hatred and the ugliness of this world. And, and, and I'm not in heaven. I'm down here. I'm stuck in the middle of this mess, but I really, really want to go to heaven. And so I need to cry out to God something about that. I believe Romans 8 verses 26 and 27 is saying that the Spirit will speak to the Father and will say, Father, this child wants to come and live with you. This child needs some help today. This child wants you to work in their lives to weave things for their good. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says next, verse 28. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's some textual variations. Your translation is probably going to have probably a lot of those same words. They're just going to kind of be reordered. So there's a lot of questions about how exactly that should be rendered, particularly about this business of whether it's God works all things or all things work. And in a lot of ways, that's really more than what I'm prepared to deal with this evening. And maybe at the end of the day, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But I think the point here is simply that God is at work. That in any and every situation, God is working on our behalf and He's doing that through His providence. Man, I mean, just look at this lineup that we got going for us. The Lord's given us hope. He's given us the Spirit. And now we're reading about how the Lord has given us His providence to help us. Now I want you to please notice what Paul does not say in verse 28. I know verse 28 is a favorite of a lot of people. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But we want to make sure not to twist the words around. Paul does not say that God causes all things to happen. That's not what Paul says. Nor does Paul say that everything that happens is necessarily good. That's not what he says. And furthermore, Paul does not say that everybody in the next five minutes is going to get a good result even if you just experienced a really, really bad thing. That's... None of that is here in Romans 8 verse 28. What Paul does say though, is that in the final analysis, that ultimately in the end, God's power and wisdom and love are such so that everything will wind up in ultimate good. I think that's what Romans 8 28 is saying. And I think what that means is, is that means, just practically speaking, we just need to be very careful with how we talk to people. Particularly I'm thinking about how we talk to people who are hurting or people who have experienced terrible tragedies and pain and heartache in their life. Go to somebody who maybe has just lost a, you know, just lost a child in a car wreck. And you go up to them and maybe you want to somehow try to almost kind of quote Romans 8, 28 in some kind of, kind of halfway sort of way. And we go to them and we say, well, you know, God's going to cause all of this to work together for good. So you don't need to cry about that. I mean, God never closes a door without opening a window, right? I mean, that's exactly what Romans 8, 28 is telling us. No, it isn't. That is not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is that God, in His time, He will weave all things together for good, for His glory, and for His honor. And that assurance, I want you to understand, that is not some Pollyanna unwillingness to accept that there is evil in this world, or that bad things really do happen to good people. No, this is the understanding and this is the conviction that you and I, we are in the hands of God. 
And if ever I could feel confident in somebody's hands, I am confident being in the hands of God, in the hands of the very same God who sent His Son to die for me, the very same God who has given His Spirit to help me and to intercede for me. These passages are telling us that we can count on God to bring us to heaven. In fact, the good that's described there in verse 28, it may actually be the thing that he mentions next in verse 29. Would you look at verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I think that that good thing of verse 28 may very well be that God will use and weave together all of life's circumstances in order to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And that is what life is all about, isn't it? I mean, that is my, that's job one as a Christian, to become more like Christ. To pattern my thoughts and my words and my ways and my attitudes after the perfect and spotless Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ever going to be perfect. But that's the standard. I'm trying to be like Jesus more and more each day. And the fact of the matter is, if becoming like Christ is going to have to involve God allowing me to go through some tough stuff, and then God using some of that tough stuff to accomplish the purpose of making me like Jesus, then so be it. I will be willing to accept that. In fact, that helps make sense of a lot of the difficulties that we face in this life. And so, verse 30, Paul says that those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, you may have noticed there in verses 29 and 30, there's a couple of words and phrases there that get used that give us a little bit of heartburn. Anytime somebody starts tossing around the words foreknew and predestined as it relates to the Bible, we get pretty nervous about that. Because we know from our conversations and our dealings with friends and co-workers and neighbors who are part of, of the religious world at large, we know that those kinds of ideas and concepts have been greatly abused and misused. I simply want to say to you this evening that you cannot make verses 29 and 30 somehow be set against all of the other passages in the Bible that talk about things like free will, or the things in the Bible that talk about the choice that we have to obey God and to respond to His gospel. You cannot somehow force Calvinism into the Word of God and you most certainly cannot make Romans 8 somehow teach this idea of absolute individual predestination. All these passages are saying in verses 29 and 30 is that God predestines all believers to go to heaven. But that does not mean that He predestines the ones who will become believers. Do you understand that? He predestines the group who's going to go to heaven. That's the believers. But God doesn't decide who all is going to be a believer. That's, that's something that we have the choice about. In fact, Paul has well established that already. Chapter 4 and in chapter 6. And so who is it that's been predestined? Who is it that has been called? Who is it that's been justified? And who is it that's been glorified? He answered it back in verse 28. It's those who love God. And of course, if you want a complete definition of what it means to love God, it means to love with Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving Him means obeying Him. That's the complete picture of someone who loves God. And that is the one who hold this promise of God's providence working in their lives and working to bring them home to heaven. 
And while I may never on this side of eternity, I may never be able to pinpoint with 100% accuracy events and things in my life that are happening and say, ah, yep, that, that right there, that was the providence of God. Or, oh, no, looking back, yep, that right there, that was absolutely, without a doubt, the providence of God in my life. I may not be able to say that. The best I'm probably ever going to be able to say on this side of the grave is perhaps, perhaps that was God's providence. But I'll tell you this, I can be confident 100% that He is at work. Whether I can point all those things out on a chart, I may never be able to do that now, but I can be confident He is at work. And I can take great comfort in that because the Bible says so. Which brings us then to the magnum opus of this incredible chapter. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The key in all of this is the faithfulness of God. You know, any question that we may ever have or the Roman brethren may have had about God's willingness or God's desire or God's efforts to bring people to heaven, I think those questions are answered emphatically in verse 31 when Paul says, God is for us. And what follows is Paul then asking four rhetorical questions. He'll ask, first of all, who can be against us? He'll then ask, who can bring a charge against us? He'll ask, who will condemn us? And then he'll ask, who will separate us from the love of God? And for the Christian, for the one who is living in the Spirit, do you know what the answer to all of those questions is? The answer to all those questions is nobody. Nobody. We are going to heaven. You can't stop us. We are on the way because God is for us, Paul says. Verse 32 now. He who did not spare His own Son, if God was willing to give His Son, what will He not do for us? He gave His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We already noticed in previous chapters, God has declared us right. He has done that by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, our faith in Jesus. He's done that by the gospel. By that we have been justified. Nobody can then come along and decide that they're going to somehow overturn God's verdict. Oh God, you pronounced them not guilty? Well, well, I say that they are guilty. And you know what? There are forces, there are people, there are entities that will try to come along and accuse us again. The devil certainly tries to accuse us. In Revelation, he's called the accuser. We may have even brothers and sisters who will accuse us. In fact, I even wonder if in the Roman church there was some of that accusing going on. Oh, you're, you're a sinner. You're still a sinner. In fact, sometimes even our own conscience will accuse us of that very thing. And the fact of the matter is, it is true. We are sinners. But what our conscience or what brethren or what other people or what the devil fail to reckon with is that God has declared not guilty. What that means is... God has forgiven us. And when God says you are forgiven, that means all the charges, they've been dropped. They've been dropped. This case has been settled. Verse 34. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Something here about how Jesus is interceding. Maybe that's an allusion to the Timothy thing about how He's our mediator. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice here that the believer, the believer still suffers. It's just, that's just all in this passage. Just because you're a Christian, just because you're trying to live right, doesn't mean that you're exempt somehow from the sufferings of this present time. In fact, the quotation there in verse 36, that's taken from the Psalms, taken from the Old Testament, Psalm 44, verse 22. No one can somehow decide that, oh man, things are going bad in my life, and well, I guess that just mean I'm, must mean I'm not a Christian. Or maybe that somehow means that God God doesn't love me or God doesn't accept me and that's the reason for these bad things happening. No, that's not the final verdict on that. What these passages teach us is that we just have a completely different view towards suffering. We have the power of God working in us. We have the power of God working for us. And so we trust God. Verse 37, verse 37, the answer to all those questions is no. In all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, listen to the confidence of Paul, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is through God's love that we are more than conquerors. That is an incredible expression. It's actually a compound word. Paul has taken two Greek words and he's kind of put them together to make this term more than conquerors. The first word is the word hooper or hooper. And here's where we get our word hyper or maybe the word super, over the top. The other word here is the word nikeo. Do you know what nikeo is? Some of you are maybe even wearing some nikeo this evening. There's a company, they make tennis shoes and other apparel, Nike. And what that word means is, is that word means victory. And when you put them both together, what Paul is saying is he's saying that God's love and God's faithfulness and through the work that God is doing, you and I, we are hyper-victorious, super-victorious. We are more than conquerors. It's not just that we're conquerors. And it's not just that we're barely victorious. Oh, we just won the game by one point. Oh, we're just barely going to make our way into heaven. Maybe kind of right there at the very end, I'll slide under the gate before it fully and finally gets shut. That's not the description here. Paul says that in the love of God, we can and we will be saved and we will go to heaven. He says in these passages, Nobody's going to stop us from that. You ever thought about that? There's not anybody, there's not anything outside of you that can stop you from going to heaven. Persecution can't do that. Death can't do that. An angel can't do that. The devil can't do that. You are the only one with that power. You can choose to reject God's love and yes, you can choose to walk away. For the one who wants to love God, and for the one who wants to live with Him for all of eternity, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can stop us. 
And so notice how Paul began chapter 8 verse 1 by saying, there is no condemnation. And he closes it in verse 39 by saying, now there is no separation. Romans 8 says to us that if you want to go to heaven, you can go. You can. You can go to heaven. And God has given us everything that we would ever need in order to see that through to the very end. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad this evening that we took a few minutes to to pull over and to stop and to take a look at this big scenic overlook? Aren't you glad we took the time to do that? Because I don't know about you. It helps me to see heaven with greater clarity. And it helps me to see my place in heaven. It helps me to see the reality that I can be there with the Lord. And I can be there with the saved of all time. Can you see yourself there? If you cannot this evening, that may be because, first of all, it may be because you're just not even a Christian. You're not even in the family of God. Really much of the things that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the promises that are made here are to Christians. And so if you're not a Christian, you're really kind of standing on the outside looking in. But that can all change tonight. You can make the decision this evening. You know what? I do want to go to heaven. And God says I can go. And I'm going to take the steps so that I can be there. If we can help somebody tonight to take those initial steps, to respond in faith, to place your trust in Jesus Christ, to confess Him before this good audience tonight, to repent and turn from sin and to be baptized in water, then this very evening you can walk out of here a Christian And you can have the confidence that Romans 8 speaks about knowing that you are going to heaven. If you are a Christian, but you've not been living in the Spirit, you've not been living as you should as one of God's children, then brother or sister, that certainly can obscure your view of heaven. And you're not able to see it with the glory and the beauty and the grandeur that it holds for us, but that can change as well tonight. You can repent. You can come back to the Lord. The earth is still standing. You still have breath in your body. That means there's opportunity and time yet for you to make your life right with God. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us help one another as we make that journey toward heaven. It may be this evening that you don't want to come forward during the invitation song. Maybe that's a fearful thing for you. I learned last Sunday night that I need to be available after the final amen is said. And if I'm not available, you go find somebody who will make me available and we will see to it that you can become a Christian or you can make your life right before we leave this place. Whatever your need may be, now's a great time to do something about that. Won't you do something right now while we stand and while we sing?